You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, there's a lot going on. And many of you know this because you watch the news and keep up with stuff. And I, I'm just, you know, there, there's so much, right? Epstein is going down. There are shootings now around the U.S. two places, Ohio and Texas, El Paso. And, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're holding those areas up in prayer. But I will say this, um, you know, I think... The enemy is getting nervous. I, I really do. I, I I believe that there is a domino effect at work where components of the kingdom of darkness are toppling because of a move of God that's kind of going under the surface, but moving nonetheless. And we are watching in real time both the downfall and the panic of the powers of darkness. And I just want to encourage those of you that, that really listen to this program, press into God and do all kinds of exploits in the spirit. Be encouraged. I, th I believe that the body of Christ, the kingdom of God is in this hour taking more ground than we realize. And I want to say, um, do not grow weary in well-doing for you will reap in due season if you faint not. And, you know, Bride Ministries, there is also a lot going on, and I want to remind you, we have a whole school. I, I don't know if you noticed, but Bride Ministries is not just a podcast. We are an equipping platform for the maturing sons of God, and we, we, we built a whole school. <laughs> and, and by the way, if you have been interested in the school, but you really can't fork out the cost of the different classes— there is an opportunity to audit courses at our school. Where do you find that opportunity to audit them for free? At the Bride Ministries Church. And so if you haven't been attending the Bride Ministries Church, which meets every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, you have been missing out on so much more than you know. We have been in a series on engaging the Spirit through Christ, which has a lot of folks excited, myself being one of them. But, you know, at the Bride Ministry Church, that's where you learn how you can be part of community building efforts at Bride Ministries, where we're connecting people all over the world with like-minded individuals that want to talk about the things that you're learning and are interested about. And we're doing it through our school courses. And so what, we're, what we have is we, we have moderators that will play our school courses. One course goes for eight weeks and, and, and the meetings are weekly during the week, right? And you will meet with about 15 or so other people and you will watch the video of the school course as the moderator plays it. And then afterwards, the moderator will lead group discussion so you get to meet people and make friends. There's only one way to figure out how to sign up for this opportunity. It's by going to the Bride Ministries Church. But we're going to be allowing for signups for this secret endeavor. Um, starting again at the Bride Ministries Church this week for another eight-week sequence. And so if you want to find out how to enjoy this outreach of our ministry, you're going to have to show up. Now, to join, you simply go to BrideMinistriesInternational.com. Go to the church tab and then 
click either watch via Zoom or watch via YouTube. And we have a little explainer video to explain how you can push one of two buttons in order to enjoy our church service, most of you. We'll be able to figure this out without the video, but we made it for you anyway. It's actually a lot of fun to watch. It's short and it's animated, so you might want to just check it out anyway. Now, uh, there's a number of other things going on that you should know about. We have the book, Advanced Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth, getting typeset right now. So it's already edited and everything, and, 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 and it's being framed up for the book. And the next step, you know, is going to be publishing it. We're still waiting on the cover design. It's almost finished. Once the cover design is done, we're going to be sending out emails. We're going to be putting up things on our website. You're going to be able to pre-order the book. So for those of you that have been waiting, is there going to be a pre-order? When is that coming? Probably within the next week or two, at the latest, two weeks from now. In my mind, unless something catastrophic happens, we're right on track. And so look forward to that. I am so excited about the testimonies that are going to be rolling in at the re release of this book. I, 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 I'm telling you, this is like prayers that shake heaven and earth on steroids. It's advanced prayers that shake heaven and earth. So with that said, I just want to say thank you to all of our faithful supporters, donors. You guys are just the best, and we pray for you all the time. Folks, I'm done. We're going to get to the program. Our podcast this week is going to blow your mind. Trigger warning, there's going to be some tough stuff discussed. And so be ready for that. Maybe consider, you know, the well-being of your young children before letting them listen to this particular podcast because we're going to be going there. And so with that said, don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we are on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall, and I am here to introduce you to a new friend. Not too long ago, I got an email from Jane. Now, Jane is not her actual name, okay? This is a pseudonym, and as we get into this program, you're going to learn why she decided to use a pseudonym, at least for now. And her story is absolutely incredible. And she is a, well, party to a lot of very high level satanic stuff uh, because she was born into it. And she has since escaped and committed her lives to helping others. and in the process has one of the most remarkable recollections of what actually transpired in the cults during her time of involvement through her childhood. And so, you know, I'm going to let her introduce herself because unlike many of my other guests, I haven't actually had the opportunity to work with Jane. And so, you know, all I can say is, Jane, welcome to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your bravery, Jane, and I'm going to let you get started because um, I'm still getting to know you, you're getting to know me, and uh, my audience certainly doesn't know who you are. So uh, 
we'll just say it like this. You describe the occult world to me in our private conversation as being organized like a company. Okay. And yeah. you have a deep understanding of this system. So before getting to the system and letting you explain that to us, I want you to give us as much of your background as you're comfortable with. Help us to understand why you know what you claim to know. Well, my story really starts with my mother. Um, as you said, we were born into this and come from pretty much a very high level um, in the Illuminati. Um, so my, I'll just come straight out and say I have um, relatives um, who are actually the mothers of darkness. And um, so I was born into that and um, just trying to think where to go here first. Um, <laughs> I'll maybe start with um, my mother when she was 18, she tried to run from this by joining the military. And uh, she grew up thinking that she was crazy because that's what um, our family had told her. And they really downplayed any memories that she had um, anytime she questioned the system or what was happening. You know, they would just tell her she was crazy and very imaginative and things like that. Um, but she, there was a lot of trauma that she had experienced. And so at 18, she joined the military and there she met my dad, who was not a believer. And they got married, and shortly thereafter, I was born. And we'll skip a little bit to then when I was two. Um, my, our basically our house pipes froze in the winter, and we had to move in with my father's brother. And he and his wife um, were Christian, and began to witness to my mother without knowing any of her background or history or anything her family was involved in and they started taking us to church and i can remember the very first time i went i was only two and there was this little old mexican woman named lily and she sat me on her lap and opened up the bible and read to me the story of john the baptist and i remember when i heard the words you know get ready jesus is coming um my heart just leaped and, and I knew it was true. And um, anyway, so for the next year, they, you know, kept witnessing to my mother. And um, a year after that, she, she came to the Lord and I was three at the time. And so then she sat me down and explained to me um, how to know the Lord and asked if I wanted to. And, and I said, sure, you know, and uh, but it was authentic, and, you know, I really prayed and asked the Lord to come into my heart. Well, what was foundational about that was that um, none of us knew that the next, the next year was when we had to move in with my mother's parents. And um, that's when my occultic training began. And so I literally, the Lord um, saved me the year before that training began. Wow. And um, how the system works, like if you, again, if you think of it like a company, 
Um, the very top, as I understand it, are the five mothers of darkness. And um, they're like the CEOs of the company. And um, they direct, directly talk to Satan. Uh, one of their spiritual gifts is that they can hear and see into the spiritual world. And um, their whole job is to know how the system works and to make sure and ensure that it runs correctly. And then they also do the spiritual gift testing for individuals and uh, decide which positions people will go into in, if they're selected for um, the Monarch programming. Um, there's two, I'll just quickly say, there's two types of individuals when a mother is deciding, um, we'll just say the fate of people. <laughs> um, you have what, and these are their terms, not mine, but they've got the individuals that they consider the expendables. And those are people who, in their mind, don't have the spiritual gifts that they desire to connect to demonic spirits. Um, to fulfill the roles and positions that um, that run the company, um, and the other ones would be what would be considered the hierarchy children, and these are the ones that are chosen to go into the monarch program. Um, so underneath the mothers, so you have the brides. Can yep. I just pause there? All right. So, folks, first of all. She's actually going to slow walk us through. Um, as she understands it, the, the way uh, things work, um, I want to ask a few specific questions about the Mothers of Darkness before we move on to the next tier down. So you say there are five Mothers of Darkness that you're aware of. And... And, and and you're over here in the United States. Now, many people are aware of a castle in Belgium called Mothers of Darkness Castle. What yes. is the relationship between the Mothers of Darkness, you, and your experience and, and that castle? Um, according to my experience um that particular castle is not the real mother of darkness castle um that would be what we would call the grand high priestess castle and a lot of times the grand high priestesses are also called mothers uh, because they are in charge of overseeing the different uh, quadrants, whether internationally or in the United States. Um, so those castles are specifically used um, for different ritual ceremonies that only involve those levels or higher. Um, that particular castle is used um, when, like say recently, Gloria Vanderbilt um, who was a grand high priestess for the East, passed away. Um, so there was a, we'll just call it a witch's battle among high priestesses for her position. Um, so that battle took place at that castle underground. 
Um, that actually just happened a couple weeks ago and the new successor took her position. Um, the, they're also used like the real mother of darkness castle um, was used to do prep for future rituals or ceremonies that only the mothers are privy to or for um, the ritual when they're selecting their protectors or assassins um, they have an arena underground where the assassins uh, will fight for top positions um, there are i will also say sometimes it is used for training in the sense of um about four to eight times a year people in the hierarchy who are those levels will meet and will do specific um training um like learning how you know like i was there to learn how to open up spiritual gates um things like that so jane you're saying to us that the uh mothers of darkness castle as it's called in belgium is actually fake news it's not the real one in fact according to your experience that is a Correct. place where grand high priestesses meet and the yes. real castle is somewhere else Correct. Wow. Well, you also told us that some of the Mothers of Darkness responsibilities include talking to Satan, knowing the way the company or system works within the Illuminati and the occult um, holistically, and also doing these gift tests. Now, before we move on, are there any other responsibilities that these mothers carry? Those are their main ones. Um, they are the ones that, um, as you get into the different quadrants, um, each mother is responsible for overseeing a, a quadrant both internationally as well as in the U.S. So if there's any problems in that quadrant um, or you know, usually the chain of command um, would go straight from Satan to these mothers to whoever um, is underneath them in that quadrant. Um, they're basically, you know, Satan runs the company and they oversee the running of that company as he desires it to be run. Wow. Now, you said that just recently, as, as, as early as just a few weeks ago, there was a witch's battle in yes. the basement of the Mothers of Darkness castle for um, the position that you said Gloria Vanderbilt? Yes. Had. Wow. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and, and for those that, I mean, because there's going to be people here, they're listening to you. What is a witch's battle? How do they make um, There, There's actually different types, but this one, the main witch's battles are done um, for positions in mm -hmm. the hierarchy. Um, so there are so many 
positions for each of the different, um, we'll just call them tiers of the company for right now. So Grand High Priestess is a pretty high position. Underneath them, you have um, eight high priest and priestesses. Um, and so when a Grand High Priestess dies, all eight of those high priestesses under her are eligible to fight for that position and whoever wins becomes the next grand high priestess um the other thing is sometimes they just um you know if they decide you know one of them decides they want to usurp another one they will call for a battle and in those battles, they will fight each other almost to the death and will steal not only that person's position and power, um, but they're also fighting for their demons. And the demons are what gives them the power, essentially. But um, it then means that they also have control over all the demons who have been aligned with this you know, former individual. Um, that's probably the best way to explain it. <laughs> wow. Okay. And in your experience, do these battles happen in the physical plane, the astral plane, both at the same time? What does it look like? Both. At the, yeah, both at the same time. Um, for people who cannot see in the spiritual realm i'm sure it, it looks pretty um out of this worldly um you know looks like individuals are levitating or uh, you know thrown against walls things like that um they they get very physical and graphic um so you know i mean i can describe like you know the one of the protector battles that I was privy to, um, you know, they, it's pretty much game, whatever weapon you can find, you can use, or whatever you can conjure up spell-wise, you can use. Um, so a lot of, you know, the individuals that I saw battle were very high in black magic. Um, they had a lot of high-level, what I would classify as general demons. Um, so those are, you know, the generals over Satan's army. Um, you know, they could be summoning those demons to fight with them or, you know, to help fight the other witches' demons. Um, so there can be more than just the two players on the field, um, if you can see in the spiritual world. Um, and uh, like I said, it does get pretty graphic and physical and um, pretty intense, but um, my goodness, not sure how else to describe it, but well, Jane, that's, that's all extremely fascinating. And here, here, here's the thing, folks, at, at this point in the interview, what we are doing is we are actually switching her phone over from her iPad. Um, because of nonsense and resistance, uh, which one would expect when talking about this subject. So, you know, 
Jane, you have more to say about these battles, right? And, and you actually had a training partner. And yes, I want you to tell us what you witnessed with your training partner. All right. Um, so his battle for position as a protector, um, we'll call them, uh, the protectors are kind of like the elite security guards. Um, each mother has their own and they're only given one. And, um, but every now and then there will be a battle, uh, for these protectors to take top position and that individual oversees um, all the protector assassins. So they are in charge of training all of the um, individuals who would be protecting or guarding all of the different hierarchies at different levels. Um, so my training partner, or let me, I'll go back up just a little bit. Um, so how it works is each of the mothers, like I said, have their own protector and they were known as the adult protectors. And then, so there were five of those and then there were five junior protectors and those individuals were all probably age 12 to 18 and they were not assigned to anybody in particular. Um, they were just backups in case something happened to one of the protectors, they could step in and um, guard whichever mother needed guarding. And then you had the five children protectors, and these were the ones that were assigned to the successors for the mothers. So the successors would be um, the children who had been selected through the programming um, to take the mother's positions um, when basically when their time was done serving. Um, so they were the future mothers. And um, so my protector had to, like first they compete um, amongst themselves. So um, the mother that I was under, um, her protector, and the junior protector under him and the child protector would all battle one another. And so it kind of went along for each mother, you know, their protectors battled and whoever won each of those battles then fought the other mother's protector who had won that battle set. And then at the end, you just had two individuals who were battling. So, my protector, he actually was just seven years old and he made it to the end and um, was battling against a, a chief, police chief. Uh, that was his real job in life. Um, and he was an adult. And so um, how it, I'm trying not to be super graphic here, but there's no way around it. Th these battles are very Romanesque. Um, so um, they fight each other naked, and um, so, you know, it does get very graphic. They are allowed to use whatever weapons they have brought with them, whatever their specialty weapons are, or whatever they can conjure or grab or use in the midst of the battle. 
Um, so anyway, the the police chief had brought his baton with him and he kept hitting um, my training partner in the kneecaps with it. And my training partner would take the blow just so he could perform his signature move, um, which he wanted to get the adult down low. And um, so once he got hit, he had fallen to the ground and then he took out the uh, police chief's Achilles and the guy fell on his hands and knees. And then my training partner, he had a shard of glass on him and he cut the guy's back, um, his back ribs. And uh, he was bleeding so bad that he basically, that's what lost the battle. Um, they had to stop it so that they could uh, do some black magic healing so he didn't die. Um, but then my training partner at age seven became the head protector um, for all the mothers of darkness. So now, folks, is you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. This interview is about to get real. Um, if this was your training partner then what were you doing? What was I doing during that battle? Well, or in general, within the cult, like what was your grandmother training you to do? If you can go, because you kind of stopped your story at the salvation moment at three. Right. Thank, praise Jesus, because now you're here. And so there's a, there's a redemption in all of this that who knows if we'll get to in this interview. But then at four, you start this training. Your partner by age seven is taking out a grown man for a protector role for the mothers of darkness in the Illuminati. Where does that place you? Um, I, I was selected to be the successor for the queen mother of darkness. Um, so when you're talking the Mothers of Darkness, there, there are five altogether, um, but there are three of them are kind of not better than, but they're considered in higher positions than the, than the rest. And they're known as the, the crone, the mother, and the maid. Um, the crone is the one who is the queen mother of darkness. And so that was the position that I was um, succeeding for. All right, Jane. So we have the crone, the mother, the maid. Uh, these are three of offices within the group of individuals known as the Mothers of Darkness. Now, we're here Correct. to talk about the system. And so I, I paused you. I took us on several not really rabbit trails, but, but uh, just trying to help you explain to me and our audience what's going on at this top level of, you know, because I'll tell you what, honestly, I've had the Mothers of Darkness referenced to me multiple, multiple times um, by different folks that I have crossed paths with or even worked with because 
we get memories of rituals while we are doing the deprogramming and the healing work right. from DID due to SRA for these Illuminati defectors. But yeah. you know more about the mothers of darkness from a technical standpoint than just about anyone I've sat down and had a conversation with in your presenting consciousness. I mean, you just know this stuff. And and so I find it fascinating to have it laid out. Now, Mm -hmm. I want you to help us to understand the level beneath the mothers of darkness, which would be the brides of Satan. So the the brides of Satan um, really don't do anything in regards to the system. Um, in the sense that they are not in charge of anybody, they don't oversee other individuals, nor do they um, have to um, respond or report to other people who are higher than them. Um, Their whole purpose and job is to um, ensure that Satan is happy and to you know, make sure that whatever he desires happens. Um, The only thing that they may do is if Satan has an individual that he is interested in making a bride, um, he may put some of the brides in charge of um, wooing or uh, luring that person into the system. And then they would kind of become like an, you know, it'd be like an apprentice type position where they would um, oversee that individual and kind of sponsor them into a bride of Satan position. Um, So other than that, there's really not much else that they do. Um, I, I would liken them very much to being kind of like Satan's, um, you know, his wife, candy wives in a way. Um, They're supposed to look good, represent him, um, you know, but that's about it. Um, Some of them do once in a while participate in some of the witches' battles, but it's pretty much a a rigged thing. If they're participating, they win, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) you know, but um, the other demons, if they win other people's demons, you know, those demons then have to be loyal to these women, but um, it really doesn't gain them any more hierarchy or power within the system. So if they, most of the time when they do participate, it's kind of just for fun and games, um, or if they're training um, their apprentice underneath them that they're going to sponsor, Uh, then they may do battles with that individual to teach them how to fight or protect themselves um, using demons and magic and witchcraft. Um, But that's kind of the extent of it. They're pretty much untouchables within that realm. Okay. Now you talk about the Sisters of Light. Who are they and what is their role? Um, the Sisters of Light, there are 13 for each quadrant, um, both in the U.S. as well as there would be 13 for each quadrant internationally. 
And they could best be described as the Illuminati's elite um, security team. They're different from the protectors and assassins. Um, their job is solely psychological or spiritual warfare. Um, so all of their fighting is going to be done in the supernatural versus the protectors and assassins uh, fight both in the spiritual and the physical planes. Um, so the Sisters of Light, you know, they're the ones that um, a lot of times are coming against Christians or churches or uh, defectors. And uh, the way that they're going to do that is through demonic oppression um, and spiritual warfare, whether it be by disease or um, plagues, you know, hits on your finances, um, things like that. Now, moving to the next level of this this system you told me that that's where one runs into the druidic council now now first of all i'm just going to ask this question what is the druidic council is it the same thing as the satanic council or do you perceive a difference and then what's the role Um, according to my experience, yes, the Druidic Council and the Satanic Council are the same thing. Um, a lot of individuals who, like, part of their cover would be as the Bilderberg uh, Conference. And so within that council, you, you have a wide range of individuals um, it varies depending on quadrant and their positions are called seats. Um, and so, you, so the number may not be the same for each quadrant and the individuals who represent it. Um, but their job primarily is to receive instruction from the mothers and then they would give that instruction to the grand high priest and priestesses in the quadrant they oversee, and then on down the chain. Um, a lot of them are, with that seat, they are given um, positions of power in their cover lives. So a lot of them are, you know, uh, businessmen or bankers. Um, a lot of them are, you know, on the United Nations or the European Councils, um, different groups like that. And um, so it could be, you know, political position. It could be a big business position or, you know, they run, you know, trillion dollar companies, things like that as well as you have um, each of those quadrants is going to have some of the different bloodline families who sit on those seats. Um, so a, a famous one would be, um, you know, the head of the Rothschild family or the Van Dyne family. They all um, have a seat within that council. 
So that would be the Druidic Council. Where do the lords, as you describe them, fit into this? What are the lords? Yes, yeah, so they, these people who are on the Satanic Council could be compared to the lords of the land. Um, so they all would be assigned to uh, what we call a quadrant, which would be either, you know, state, if it's the U.S., it would be states that are in the west or the east or the north or the south. And then each of those individuals would be assigned a territory within that quadrant that they specifically oversee. I'm following you. Now, at this point, you have, at least in the way that you have explained things to me before this recording, something that you called department branches. You said there are five of them, or five major ones. Why don't you walk us through that aspect of the oh. system? Okay. So, so as the, after you have the satanic councilmen, um, the company branches out into five different departments. Um, so you would, ha I guess the satanic councilmen, you could consider the board of directors for this company. Um, you know, so they're going to oversee all the financial decisions, all the major company decisions that are made for the system. However, um, each of them as being only lords over territories, they're, they're only really in charge of overseeing their particular territory. And so here, um, their territories kind of break down into five departments for each quadrant. So you have the Masons, the uh, Catholics, the Cabal, uh, the Satanists, and the Mormons. Um, each, of those, each of those departments have their own hierarchy structure. So just take the Catholics, for example, um, they're going to have the Pope is the head of their hierarchy structure, and then it would go on down according to the Catholic Church's structure. Uh, for the Masons, you would have, you know, the Pyrie of Zion or um, the Templars, and then underneath them, you know, you'd have the Grand High Lodge leaders, and it would continue down their structure. Um, same as the Mormons, you've got their heads and then the, the bishops, and it would follow the structure that they've set up within that department. So with the Freemasons, um, their part of the program that they would be working with um, would be more in line with the Monarch program, or I'm sorry, the MK Ultra program. Uh, which would include the Delta and the Epsilon and some of those other military-based programming. Um, and then, you know, you'd have the, uh, the Satanists who, you know, once you get into this, 
some of them cross over. So, you know, the Mormons, the Satanists, a lot of them use the beta or the kitty program. Um, you do have child trafficking that occurs across all five programs and they do work in conjunction. Um, but all of the individuals who run those programs in that certain department are all trained differently. And the mothers do that specifically so that if one of the departments were to fall or, you know, be taken down, the whole entire system would not fall. Um, they would still have four different departments all operating and functional. Um, how do you see um, the connection between the cabal and some of the other major players like Russia, China, and the power families in those nations? Well, uh, each of the families, the bloodline families are, um, they have satanic councilmen seats. So as lords of the land, their job is to oversee the five departments that would be in their territory. So they would oversee, you know, whatever Masons, um, Cabal, Catholics, um, Satanists or Mormons that are in their territory and their job would be to, you know, not only get messages to those individuals, but to ensure that whatever those people's jobs are, that they're, they're doing their job within the system. Um, so, you know, th but they're going to have direct contact with whoever is the heads of those systems. So they're not going to, you know, have direct contact with whoever's, you know, actually delivering or running drugs, but they will make sure that the head of that department, that their drug program is, is running well, if that makes sense, or, or that their child trafficking program is running well. Um, so, like I said, they're kind of like the board members that would, um, you know, in a way, oversee or employ different people. If, if somebody's not doing their job, you know, the board member's definitely going to be involved and has the ability even then to uh, request that that person be terminated from their position um, if things are not running well. Um, the same thing with if, you know, somebody will just say breaks or is not taking well to the programming, then it's that councilman's job to, you know, let others know and to get that person out of the position to put them in kind of, we'll call it fake counseling or, or whatever that person needs to make them feel like they're getting help. Mm -hmm. um, but they'll, they'll keep them, um, you know, they'll allow them to remember so many things or certain memories, but they won't allow them to speak out or say anything that could bring the system down. Um, 
you know, everybody kind of has this underlying job of making sure the system is not found out or discovered um, and to keep quiet whoever tries to bring forth truth about the system or how it works. Um, so, you know, even in the bloodline families, you'll see, you know, sometimes they will reprogram people, um, which is worse than the initial programming. Um, with the programming, kind of how it works is if you think of like a, since we're going with the business theme, um, if you think of a file cabinet, that's how they see individuals. So let's just say this individual has like three drawers in this file cabinet. In order to access those, or each of those drawers, let's say, has files in it, and the files um, contain memories mostly of traumatic experiences. Um, in order to access each drawer, each of those drawers have a key, and those keys are demonic spirits. And so you have to get past the demonic spirit in order to access the files that are in that drawer. Um, once you get past that spirit um, and you get the drawer open, then you have all these files, which again are memories or traumatic experiences that this person has gone through. Um, but in order for that person to remember those experiences, they have to open each of those files. And um, each of those files is also guarded by a spirit, uh, usually lower level spirits. And so they have to get past each of those spirits in order to access each of those memories or to remember the traumatic events that they have experienced. Um, so there's where a lot of the you know, spiritual warfare comes in for people. Um, so, uh, so when you have somebody who, what the system would call broke, like, let's just say, if they took the program well, okay, then pretty much their demonic spirits that are in charge of all of those files and those drawers are what is controlling that person and their thoughts and their mind and their memory. Mm -hmm. But if that person is not in line with those spirits or is fighting them, um, then the system considers them broken and they may, you know, re-implement training, which training is, you know, or reprogramming, um, you know, and pretty much what that means is that they're going to try to get higher level demons to connect with that individual to gain control of them, or they're going to, um, you know, may, may delete some of those files or memories and put fake memories, you know, and see if the person can handle that um, and put, you know, different spirits in charge of those memories. Um, but basically when someone has a problem with the program, it's because they're not, there's not a good spiritual connection between them and whatever um, demonic spirits they're linked with. 
um, when you get into the higher levels with some of the general demons, um, those demons are usually not given too many people that they they literally connect with. Um, and, you know, that gets back into some of the mother's job. Um, the mother's job is to ensure that through the spiritual t uh, gift testing that they do, that that child's gifts line up with whatever demonic spirit they're connected to. Um, when you get to the general demons, those demons are very harsh and brutal. Um, they basically tear people apart from the inside out. Um, so there's very few people, you know, usually if you're given a general demon, you just have that demon. You don't have like, you know, a large amount of demonic spirits that you are connected to. You would just be submitted to that one spirit um, and you have a very special position then. Um, most people who have the general demons, you know, usually mentally last at most 10 or 15 years before they, they just can't take the demon anymore because it, literally destroys them. Um, but other individuals who have lower le level demons um, are more prone to have multiple or mass amounts of demons coming and going through them. Um, they could be like into a funnel or a channel, you know, where the demons can come and go as they wish. Um, kind of, you know, you've talked about us being like portals or our spirits being like realms. Um, I would say that's a very great explanation of, of exactly how it works. Um, you know, that we're just like this, you know, building that hosts these different spirits that can come and go as they wish. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, I don't know. What you're saying is, exactly what we run into because in the process of getting people inner healing it's like we get mm -hmm. to a trauma then we have to blow something up right some kind of entity mm -hmm. uh we have to take apart some kind of program some kind of subconscious structure uh this stuff can get very fancy once the spiritual warfare and the deliverance is resolved, then we can get to the root of the pain and bring the healing power of Jesus to that brokenness. And so I, right. in my ministry, have not been able to, I, I can teach advanced deliverance and inner healing as separate mm -hmm. classes, but in practice, it's back and forth and back and forth. And so, what, I mean, what you're saying is exactly what we look at. And so that's, that, that's really well put. Now, here's the question, Jane. The question that everyone is asking is, okay, we all know how controlling the Illuminati is and how much they oppose people breaking protocol and exposing 
them. So how do you, and of course, Jane is a pseudonym, get to today where you are coming on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall to talk about one of their favorite people, I'm sure, right? And blow their whole plan. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you get here, Jane? Well, that is absolutely the miracle and the power of God. Um, like I had explained, I was saved when I was two years or three years old. We'll say that. Um, and so the Lord literally delivered me out of the system with a mighty hand. And um, where literally I, I walked away. That was the whole extent of it. Um he allowed my fam, you know, my immediate family to move and, um, you know, ended the access my, my grandmother had with me. And, um, you know, they, they still to this day are trying to get me to take my position. That has not stopped. Um, but I, so I'll go to the story of how the Lord called me to this. Um, one day I, I work as a chaplain and um, I was working with one of our homeless community centers. And so I was riding with a bus to go pick up some of these homeless individuals that I was going to minister to that night. And um, as I'm in the bus, the Lord just very clearly said to me, you know, you are going to be sharing your, your story, your testimony. And I'll be honest, I, I, I'm bad. I, I argue with the Lord quite a lot. <laughs> and I said, well, Lord, <laughs> um, there's a problem with this plan. And the problem is that, you know, they've promised, you know, that if I ever tell that they will kill my whole family in front of my face. And, and I really don't want to, you know, I, I've seen all the ways that they, they kill people. And I really don't want to watch that. <laughs> And so I started to plead with the Lord and I said, okay, Lord, you know, I, I want to do your will, but I'm going to ask for a special covering, um, you know, that you would hide me from their eyes, that you wouldn't allow the spirits or any people to hear what I'm saying or doing for you, um, but that you would just kind of hide my work and keep it under the radar. And, and this seemed like a great plan to me. But immediately, the Lord says to me, no, you will do it right before their faces. <laughs> I was like, uh, you're not even going to promise to save my children? <laughs> and the Lord was like, no, you will do it before their faces. And so that was the moment I really had to count the cost. And you know, there's no other way to put it than that in that moment I had to choose, knowing the full extent of all the consequences of everything that could or would happen, you know, would I be faithful to the Lord and trust Him, or would I say no? And, you know, I said, okay, Lord, I, I understand that with no promises, no guarantee of life for me or my family. And in fact, 
you know, it's quite grim. I mean, (laughs) any defector can tell you it's pretty intense warfare on a daily basis. And, um, you know, you're constantly being hunted and, um, and I said, okay, Lord, you know, I don't know how you're going to work this all out with all these problems I'm now going to incur with this decision, but I'm going to trust you. And, um, you know, my, my life is your story, not my own. And so I, I just surrendered it all to him. And, um, almost it was within a week or two of that, um, that all of a sudden I got this letter that our community was going to be opening up a program. So I, the Lord kind of put it on my heart to look into that. And I did. And the Lord said, I want you to write a presentation and tell people what this program really entails. And so I wrote that presentation after I did, the Lord literally brought over 350 people for me to give that to. And so I just started speaking about it. And, um, you know, with the social directors, I just shared my story. And, um, you know, really, it was focused on community prep. You know, it was um, the presentation was telling them the truth about what was happening or being taught, you know, what were the side effects going to be from these programs? So that's, that's what it focused on. And so I did that for a year. And then the next year, well, the next year they closed down their website and I was like, Hmm, like, okay, Lord, you know, how can I get access to this information? And I realized that, you know, I, they nicely would let me on the website if I was willing to buy a membership fee, <laughs> which only cost $10. Um, oh, yes. So I, I seriously thought about it and, um, you know, prayed on it for a couple weeks. And as I prayed, the, the Lord showed me there was another way. And um, he asked me to start praying for all the leaders uh, who were overseeing these programs. And so I began doing that. And um, here I'll have to go back just a little bit in my story. Um, But part of my story is, we'll go back to my training partner. And um, it was probably about six months after um, the ceremony that I had described um, that we had an incident and they had wanted me to participate in a ritual and it did involve um, killing of a baby and they had prepped us on what we were supposed to do. And um, there was another young man, we'll we'll just call him Ed for now. Um, But during this ritual, um, Ed and I, were to cut our hands and put blood into the chalice. And then together we were to take the life of this baby. Well, I'm an ornery person and I'm not, I've never been about making Satan happy at all. Um, So, you know, I just really was not into this at all. And um, so Ed did his part and, you know, put his blood in the cup and, 
then, you know, my grandmother took the dagger back that we were to cut our hands with and, you know, she presented it to me and I nicely took it like a good girl, like I was supposed to. But then instead of cutting my hand with it, um, I chucked it right at her face. And as I chucked it, I kind of swished my hand over the altar and, and threw the chalice of blood on the floor. So the big thing about this is that with Satan's rituals, they have to be perfect. If, there's, if they're not perfect, if anything goes wrong, all hell breaks loose. And uh, Satan gets very angry and uh, will basically torture and beat up whoever is at fault for this. Um, I thankfully never got that because I belong to the Lord. So instead of me getting punished, he had to punish my grandmother, (laughs) which I'm not trying to gloat or anything, but you know, it was the one of the few things that kind of made me happy in that world um, growing up as a kid. And uh, so my grandmother, knowing that she was going to get punished, was really mad. And she already many times had attempted to kill me and wanted to get rid of me. So I fully believe her next move uh, that she had all intent of, you know, killing me once and for all. And um, she had the high priest grab me and he threw me over his shoulder, kicking and screaming and hitting him. And they walked me outside and threw me down in this um, grave hole that led straight down into the catacombs. So it probably was about a 10 or 12 foot drop. And they threw me in this hole and covered it up and left. And um, so as I was sitting there in that darkness, um, the the Lord, I, I'll just describe it as I saw it, but um, I suddenly saw this man walking towards me um, who, it, it was like this fire of light surrounded him. And um, I knew it was, I knew it was Jesus. And he reached out his arms and picked me up and he carried me through the catacombs and carried me to this door. And when we got to the door, there were two things that he said to me. He said, you have to go back out there. And the next thing he said was ask me what you desire of me. And I know it's, I still to this day don't know how I understood what that question meant at that age. Um, But I knew he was just saying, ask of me what you want. And I simply said to him, I said, Lord, I want them all to come out. And um, so the Lord opened the door and I didn't know that it was actually like a secret door that led right back out into the sanctuary where we had just had the ritual but that's where I ended up. And so as I walk through this door, I'm kind of coming behind all these people at this ritual and they're all arguing and fighting. And my training partner actually saw me come out through the door. He's, um, I didn't know until later 
the Lord revealed that he had seen the Lord let me out. Um, but anyway, so I see all these people arguing and fighting, and I'm just standing behind them. And suddenly, you know, one of them notices me, and they all just turn around really shocked. And um, and the high priest, you know, had this real quizzical look, and he said, how did you get there? And I said, well, the Lord let me out the door. <laughs> he, um he got really angry and very violent and he was like, don't you dare lie to me. And I said, I didn't, the Lord let me out. And at that point, my grandmother smacked me across the face and again said, don't lie. And I said, I didn't. And I think to this day that they honestly thought I astro projected out of that catacomb, <laughs> but, um, I, I didn't lie to them. That was how I had gotten out. And um, wow. at that point, the priest had my grandmother take me home. And a few days later, you know, we were doing training again. And um, I was walking through a hallway with my training partner. And he all of a sudden, he, I'll, I'll kind of go back a little bit, but he always was very gentle um, you know, we, we didn't talk a lot when we had to do combat training or other things, you know, it was a lot of, um, nonverbal communication between us. Um, you know, so we could just move a finger or just touch a pinky to, to the other person's hand. And we knew, you know, what we were supposed to do. Um, so I was used to that very, you know, gentle communication between me and him and, as we're walking through this hallway, he suddenly grabbed my wrist and it scared me because he had never, ever done anything like that that seemed, you know, remotely aggressive. And right after he did that, he shoved me against the wall and kind of pinned me against it. And he got his face really close to mine and he said, promise me, promise me if you get out that you will get me out too. And I told him I promised that I would. Well, five months after that, um, one night I'm after like training would go all day. And then, you know, that would be in a training center with my training partner with me at all times. And then at night, my grandmother would do training just between me and her. And um, so at dinner time, she would drug my parents and my siblings. And so around, you know, six o'clock every night, they would just zonk out and, and be asleep for the rest of the night until morning time. And so from 6 p.m. until usually around 2 or 3 a.m., it would just be nonstop nighttime training between me and her. And um, so she was, you know, doing this training and afterwards, you know, I, I, I'd get like maybe three hours of sleep a night, like from 2 a.m. until 5 a.m. And um, so she um, had let me, you know, go to bed and, and I don't think I was asleep very long. And, and the next, you know, I mean, I never fully fell asleep. Um, but the next thing I know is she's literally dragging me out of my bed and down the stairs 
and she opens the front door of the house and shoves me out the door. And as soon as I got out on the porch, like I could hear the noise of this fire and my training partner's house was on fire. And I just, I took off running and, um, I can remember the fire department was already there, but they weren't doing anything. Um, a lot of the neighbors were there. All these people in our neighborhood were involved. So, um, you know, everybody was just standing around and I was looking for my training partner and his little brother and asking everybody, you know, where is he? Where is he? And nobody could give me an answer. And all of a sudden I, I hear this banging on an upstairs window of his house and I see him and um, I went running for the front door and literally these two big firemen caught me and held me back and I brutally fought with these men um, trying to get loose and they just they would not let go of me and I, I watched as the house with my training partner went up in flames with him in it. And so for 34 years, you know, in my mind, his death was the only one that I ever took responsibility for. Um, and uh, anyway, irony of ironies as God works. Um, as the Lord, you know, 34 years later called me to pray for these programs the Lord told me he wanted me to start praying for these leaders. And so I didn't even know who they were. Um, and within a week, the Lord had given me all of their names and pictures of their faces. And the head one, we'll, do, we'll just call L. I started praying for him and um, really interceding. And one day in prayer, the Lord said to me, this is your training partner. And I was like, no, I was like, it can't be. And um, I asked the Lord to prove it to me. And he did. And um, anyway, the Lord allowed me to re-extend the promise to him. In You know, uh, through the internet, I messaged him several times. And after that, he, you know, went straight to contacting me through code and stuff like that. Um but that was part of the amazing part of the story is that the Lord kept that promise of that little girl um, all those years ago and allowed her to, or me to re-extend it to him. Um, he still, you know, is, we'll just say he, he's a work in progress. We're, we're still praying for him and um, the stuff that he has to do right now. Um, but that's kind of how I got into the stuff I was working with. And, and with that, I'll add, um, it was in researching some of the different satanic things going on in my own community, um, that I came across trafficking trails. And so then the Lord started having me turn in those trails and, um, using, the different knowledge that I have of the um, the Illuminati to teach people how to, um, you know, locate where the nests are, 
uh, where things in their community are going on and how the how the Illuminati is um, how they're working those trails in that system um, through the quadrants. So, my friend, um, I'm praising God for you, and and I'll tell you what we're going to be praying for your uh, training partner. We have a lot more to talk about, Jane. Yeah, yeah, a we whole do. lot more to talk about, but. This is the end of this episode. So, folks, look forward in the future. You're going to be hearing some more from Jane. I promise you that. Um, before I end this, Jane, I just want to say thank you for having the courage to come on my program, to reach out, to share all of this stuff that you know. Um, because we're... Well, building a body of knowledge here at our ministry, at least, that is reaching thousands and tens of thousands of people, breaking the program, shattering the bondage of, uh, and bringing an awareness of what the enemy has been up to. And, and, and you are now part of that effort. And I just am so grateful for you stepping up to the plate. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It has been a pleasure. <laughs> Amen. Well, folks, um, Jane is a pseudonym. Uh, I am not going to be giving any contact information or website or any of that. So you're just going to have to settle for what you get and look forward to the next round. So until next time, God bless and Godspeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.